Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. It's Ryan Tripp uh, returning to the uh, new Native American History and Studies channel for the New Books Network. Today, we have Professor James Brooks. Um, he's a professor of history and anthropology at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, he's currently actually a visiting fellow at the uh, Robert Penn Warren Center at Vanderbilt University. Welcome, Professor Brooks. Um, so we're just going to dive in here. Um, I'm going to uh, we'll first ask you about the, uh, the uh, cover. By way of introducing the cover, uh, the U.S. cover, at least, uh, during the 1660s, Padre Jose de Espeleta, who appears in uh, the study, quote, devoted intense effort to inculcating in the already ritualistic inclined Hopis a love for choral singing and associated liturg- liturgical dramas. According to oral histories, as Navajos herded their sheep and goats beneath the in- escarpments of Antelope Mesa near Tusayan, Arizona, they marveled at the music drifting down into the canyons and washes. They gave Awat Obi the Navajo name Talahogan, the singing house or place of the singers. Espaleta also most likely served as padrino or godfather to Hopi Badger clan member Don Francisco, who in turn most likely mur- murdered Espaleta during the 1680 Pueblo Revolt and uh, later as Gachique of Orabai village may have dispatched warriors to obliterate Awat Obi on behalf of Tapolo, which we d- we'll discuss that later. In this context, in addition to the wind gusts that you describe elicit a tone from the wires that protect this high place of the Bo clan, why did you select a photo that describes Awat Obi as the singing house for your cover? That, that's a great question and a great way into, into the whole story, actually, Ryan. I appreciate that. that uh, for those of, of your listeners who haven't seen it, that this is a, a 1915 photograph taken by Alfred Vin, uh, Vincent Kidder, who was a leading figure in Southwest archaeology at the time. He may have been returning from his um, uh, performance at the San Diego Exposition of 1915, in which he had coordinated bringing uh, several uh, members of Puebloan communities in the Southwest to create an Indian living village at the exposition. Uh, the timing works out such. It turned out to be not a very good experience for the Native people who felt themselves very uh, exploited and on display. But so he's coming back um, and apparently stops at, at the site of Waterby and 
takes several photographs. This is the only one that I've been able to find. Um, but it's situated uh, such that it's focusing on really the only remaining standing architecture uh, at the site in 1915. Remember, this is more than 200 years after the uh, village was destroyed by, by fellow Hopis. Um, but it's also situated within the church nave of what had been Mission San Bernardo, the Awadawi, that had been established in the 1620s there. And uh, for those of, of you who have read or will read the book, you'll know that by the by the end of the book, uh, that church nave is central to trying to understand the enigmatic nature of what went on, what ran up to that, that moment of violence and obliteration there in that um, it, the church had been largely destroyed 20 years earlier in the Pueblo Revolt, but the church nave and the floor of the nave had continued to be used, even in the absence of Franciscans and any Spaniards, in ways um, that suggest some kind of continued form of Christian and Catholic piety, even in the absence of missionaries, and that the, the uh, floor of the nave was used as a place for the burial of Hopis who died during that 20-year period. Uh, and more than two-thirds, roughly, of the, of the burials that were excavated there in the 1930s uh, were clearly post-revolt, post-destruction interments, um, which raises a question of just how thoroughly uh, was Christianity obliterated in the Pueblo Revolt of 1680? Uh, and what the even bigger question, what was going on at Awadabi that was so particular that might have uh, called down the destruction of the whole village 20 years later? So that's... that's um, a good way to, to leap into the story. Um, I just had, had told Ryan before the interview began that the French translation of the book is due out in um, February and features a different cover. It has a, it too, an historic uh, photograph by Ralph Kuis. It's, it's situated at the living community of Mishongubi and um, features the entrance to Akiva and perhaps Akiva priest there. Also got a very nice um, hawk sitting on the ladder of the Kiva. But uh, what is most important to me is that the French edition actually has a subtitle that was much closer to the one that I proposed uh, than what I ended up with uh, working with Norton. Norton is a fabulous press and I learned a lot from my editor, John Glassman there. But uh, I've been in publishing long enough to know that I or should have known that authors always lose when marketing departments um, prefer a different title. So I fought very hard to not have the term massacre in that subtitle because the whole point of this book is, is uh, exploration of how different peoples and different positions can see a single event in many different ways. And many, many Hopis today would tell you that that was not a massacre, that that was a act of violent act of purification that was absolutely necessary um, for Hopi culture to persist. So, but the French edition has the, the subtitle, L'histoire et les fantômes du passé en pays Hopi, 
history and the ghosts or phantoms of the past in Hopi country, which is much closer to what the intent of the book is. So that's a long response to a question about a photograph. I'm sorry. <laughs> Quite, quite all right. Um, so, uh, as our listeners already know from the introductory text, the uh, the U.S. title of the book is "Mace of Sorrows: um, A History of the Awatobi uh, Massacre." On that note, I didn't title it that. The marketing, the marketing, the marketing <laughs> we've made that clear here in the introduction. Right? The marketing, <laughs> the marketing title. And, well, you know, I understand that I've been a publisher, and I understand that it's you know why publish books if you can't sell books. And what they wanted to do was to tie this book into the whole readership and interest group. That, for instance, Ari Kelman's misplaced massacre, the the study of the. Um, Sand Creek Massacre, you know, which was a Bancroft winning book, and Carl Jacoby's Shadows at Dawn, which was an exploration of the Aravipa Massacre down in um, Arizona. So it, I understand their marketing logic, but it just it, it, it bothered me because so much of what the book is about is, is this puzzle of, is this a massacre or is it uh, an act of purification or is it somehow both? I appreciate your candor. It was actually published in 2016 and uh, recently released um, a few months ago, a couple months ago, actually for, uh, for paperback readers on that note, um, how and why does your study approach the quote history of the autumn 1700 Awatobi massacre in terms of sources, the fragmented nature of the past and the cyclical Bahana prophecy as a central agent um, quoting you in the perpetual tension of the Hopi historical imagination. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that if, actually, if you look back at my whole kind of writing career and, and the, the books and, and essays I've produced, um, one of the questions that really haunts me and I think lies at the center of so much history is, is how, how do perfectly decent people do perfectly terrible things? Um, I think that all of us are, are capable um, of, of being decent, and I think we're all capable of doing terrible things. And and so I'm I'm almost all of my work, uh, especially looking at, at you know the slavery in the southwest southwest borderlands and different forms of kind of bondage and violation that way. Um, have this question of of you know, when you stand in a different position do you see uh, the same event in different ways and and I thought the Awatabi story was particularly intriguing in that it, there is a body of Spanish documentation not a lot but but some to help us understand kind of what was going on during that that um, 80 year mission period and the run up to to the destruction of the Pueblo. There have been many uh, oral oral historical accounts collected from Hopis since the 1870s, really, and up into the 1970s, like a century of of oral accounts of of the destruction that very widely, shall we say, in um, their explanations and, and many of the details. And, and yet, no one disputes that something big and traumatic and significant took place at Awatabi Pueblo in the autumn of 1700. And so I was really intrigued as this as an opportunity to um, 
to, to delve into this question and also do whatever I could as, as an outsider um, to find a way to tell the story based simply on the documentation that was available to me. And then I was very careful to draw a boundary around myself on this, even though that I, in my, my position, you know, I, I ran the school for advanced research for nearly a decade in Santa Fe. And we have many, many Hopi visitors and Hopi artists and residents and Hopi scholars. Um, the, the, what I wanted to do was write a book that anybody with a library card could write that I wanted to gather in one place for the first time, all the published available, publicly available uh, material, whether it be issued by Hopis or, or issued um, by archeologists or by historians and see if there were some way of telling the story that would serve as a way of opening a conversation among Hopis privately that can could easily exclude any outside ear uh, to help resolve this is a, this is a deep and enduring trauma at Hopi and and some Hopis have said that this is the central dilemma in terms of, of sorting out the very notion of Hopiness is, is that the Hopis are supposed to be the peaceful people and yet they uh, at one point, at least, if not more, as you know from the book, have had to rely on these um, exercises of violence to somehow correct moments of what they, uh, what some see as chaos and and uh, licentiousness and immorality. So, in in a, in, a, in in one way, uh, obviously, for those who read the book, that this is, I think, kind of a universal human story. Uh, certainly, this is something that has happened in many, many places and many times um, when people destroy their own. Uh, and that's what the story's about. So, so uh, thank you. Diving uh, deeper into the book, um, in 1892, anthropologist uh, Jesse Walter Fuchs sketched the site, a site map of Awadabi Pueblo high on the natural ramparts of Antelope Mesa. According to your assessment of his map, uh, the site divided roughly, this is him, uh, the site divided roughly between the west, where the massive mound of the main Pueblo rose several stories high, and the east, where the Franciscan church still showed standing walls and a mound of rooms suggesting an Indian residential block in close association with the Spanish mission. What did Fuchs uh, hope to find at Awatobi? And why did these aims reinforce the preconceptions of, as you argue, white Americans who saw the Indians of the Southwest as living antidotes to the frightening transformations of industrialization and untrammeled modernization? <laughs> well, there's kind of two, two avenues of questioning there. The one, what what was Jesse Fuchs trying to do by heading to well, the Antelope Mesa in 1892? Um, you know, he had he had a kind of a spotty career as an archaeologist. He's not terribly well respected uh, for his field methods, that's for sure, if you read the book. Uh, but what he was also trying to do was to make a connection between what he saw as the scientific study of the past through the study of material culture, which is what archaeologists do, with the indigenous oral narratives and traditions and histories 
that had likewise been cultivated for centuries, right? So he thought, here, we, we have a case. We know that here is a village uh, that has nearly for at least four centuries of occupation represented in it. We know almost down to the day on which that village ceased to be occupied. And can we find evidence if we excavate there to support or, you know, contradict these uh, Hopi narratives that had talked about the destruction, the necessity of the destruction of the village. And so he goes out and hires Hopi workmen, and he knows that at least some of the oral accounts say that the reason the attack succeeded was that uh, it occurred during the the days of the Wu-Tsim ceremony, which is the um, induction ceremony for um, young men or boys transitioning to manhood. That takes several days. There, Everyone's down in the kivas, all the men are and the boys. Um, and so there are no defenders there. And, and the way the Hopis tell the story is, and you'll see in the book, that... Um, the uh, the villages that fielded the the columns that, that became the the assailants uh, knew this was going on, so the fighters uh, lingered and, and hid overnight beneath the mesa. Uh, were signaled from within the village by some say the the uh, blazing of a torch, others say the snapping of a blanket um, to to enter the village and destroy it. And, and there's a gate that has been left guarded, unguarded uh, in the defensive wall. And um, so what, what Fuchs does is he, you know, plums the ground and finds what he would consider a depression for a kiva. Uh, and they excavate into that kiva. And sure enough, they find human remains. And um, his helpman, Hopi workmen promptly look, lay down their shovels and picks and go back to their villages and spend the night singing and building, making prayer, prayer sticks and come back and lay those in the depression and say, we're not doing this anymore. Um, so, so that's what he publishes in, uh, American Anthropologist or the Bureau of American Ethnology uh, over the next two or three years are these kind of snippets of this field work that he's conducted. So, so what he's trying to do is test um, the, the authenticity or the accuracy of, of native oral tradition with archaeological field methods. So that that's Fuchs's goal. Now, whether <laughs> simultaneous to this, there's a growing fascination on the part of non-Indian Americans, generally white, generally middle-class, generally educated Americans, who uh, in, in the midst of kind of this, the period of, of high industry, the Gilded Age, the excesses, consumption, all this, look to the Southwest as a, as a kind of an alternative model for the way societies can be composed. And um, it's generally presumed that Puebloan peoples are 
peace-loving, agricultural, ceremonially uh, deeply devout people with relative gender balance uh, uh, in their communities, that there is no uh, stratification. These are egalitarian societies, um, generally somehow democratic, that nobody quite understands how that works. And uh, it, so the, the Southwest is this kind of magnet for a lot of seekers who come out in the late 18, you know, 1890s so up through the 1920s uh, and really transform the Southwest. It's the reason New Mexico gains statehood, certainly, is that it finally raises the number of white settlers over the number of the white residents over the number of uh, Hispano citizens. Uh, because people are really reluctant to bring New Mexico into the into the nation until after 1912, when the when the demographics work out, um, and and among many of these migrants are young wealthy white women, and they become really the core for the cultural community uh, that will shape even New Me- the New Mexico that we see today. That um, the the white sisters, Horace Mann, uh, Mann White's daughters. Um, Miss Eve and and her sister are they come out for, and they're heirs to the New York Post, Chicago Tribune. They buy three hundred and fifty acres on the west side of Santa Fe. They go into the development business. They they build homes. They become the foundation for what will ultimately become the Santa Fe Indian Market, Santa Fe Fiesta, the whole arts and cultural community there. And there are many many women like this. They they also ultimately. Uh, grant their the estate to the School of American Research, which is now uh, the School for Advanced Research that I uh, served as director for for uh, a good chunk of the 2000s. So the, there's this this kind of tension between the imagined uh, nature of Pueblan society and then what we see more and more often uh, of late, the 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 evidence we see on the ground, not only at Iwatabi, but all over the Southwest, of some pretty severe punctuation, shall we say, of, of violence and trauma and destruction. And uh, that, that's kind of been the tension now for the last 20, 10 or 20 years. Of, how, do we, how do we resolve these two very, very different understandings of who, who Puebloan people are and have been? Is that helpful? Thank you. Yes. Uh, more specifically, these uh, white women that you're talking about uh, from New York and Boston re- relocated to New Mexico territory in search of, as you argue, another imagined model. The existence among the pueblos of societies in which women wielded real social power. Can you elaborate on this uh possible exclusion of women, uh, the actual exclusion of women from uh, the great kivas at Chaco Canyon and after 1300 uh, community level Katsina kivas. Well, this is, is the, that particular question has been developed much more over the last, but I don't know, maybe 15 years or so uh, by women anthropologists and, and archaeologists who um because of the disparities in, in power and, and, and along gender lines within the, the discipline, uh, were much more sensitive to looking for evidence for inequalities of power in pre-Columbian societies. And um, Patricia Crown, back in the early 
2000, I guess 2001, um, through an SAR project, actually published probably still, I think, one of the best books on the question called Women and Men in the Prehistoric Southwest, Labor, Power, and Prestige. Um, and, and in general, you know, again, this is a gross simplification, but if you look at the early beginnings of what will become kind of the Puebloan societies that we think of today, that these are very, very small villages, hamlets, people are living almost entirely beneath the surface of the ground in, in what we call pit houses or pit structures um, that are subterranean. They, they have uh, interlocking uh, timber roofs, but they, one, it's a great place to live if it's either cold, super cold or super hot wherever you are, because underground living is nice and stable. Um, but in those, so let's say the 8th and ninth and 10th centuries, when you look at those, it appears to be that those are very much female spaces and that they're, they're residences and women do you know, the child rearing and food preparation and serving and um, the craft production and weaving, you know, whether it be basketry or, um, you know, garments or whatever. Um, but that the pit house is the model then for what will later, within, over the next several centuries, become what we call the kiva, the subterranean ceremonial chamber. Uh, which is kind of distinctly maybe different from a residential space. And at least in my looking at contemporary ethnography, largely a male space uh, associated with male sodalities. And um, so it's somehow, in some way, something happens during the evolution of this form, this architectural form, that... Um, begins to remove women from kind of a central role and it becomes a male space. And some people, and, and you can look at Patty Crown's book and some of the contributors there, see kind of the advent of, of Chaco Canyon or the, what we might call the Chaco phenomenon as a time when men seize and rise in power in, in the ceremonial sphere and to the exclusion of women in that small, these small kind of domestic-like uh, looking kivas become things like great kivas. Uh, and, and these great kivas are very, very much oriented toward major displays of performance of, of ceremonial uh, functions. And if indeed we can look and at more modern um, restrictions on women's access, women may have been excluded from that participation because, in the, at least in the Eastern Pueblos, most women are not um, allowed in kivas and women aren't allowed to talk about the Katsina religion and things like that. So that's, you know, I, it, I only kind of hint at some of that because I, it's a question that remains open. However, when you look at the Hopi narratives around the destruction of Oatui, many of them focus on as one of the signs of Kleanaskatsi or, or corruption and, and decadence and disorder that is unfolding in the village, that many of them point to the presence of women in Kivas. Um, as as 
a sure sign that something has gone terribly wrong. And so that that's, again, that's where I'm just piecing together various strands of, of thin evidence uh, and hoping for the best um, in terms of, of building a deeper understanding of what happened there. Uh, moving on, uh, you also uh, argue that, uh, quote, motivation toward violence was born of a profound fear of unseen and little understood power. Those whose power may may in hidden knowledge, like the Chaco Canyon priest, in signs of cultural difference like the cowboy wash community, or in supernatural struggle, struggles between old and new religions, as at Homolovi during the Katsina conversions, may have been marked for death. Thus was the fate of sorcerers, wizards, and witches in the Southwest. With the arrival of Franciscan missionaries beginning in the 1540 Hopi mesas, numinous forces from after, from afar, stoked the fears of metaphysical threats of evangelical religion and intensified an ancient anxiety. As you've already alluded to, Hopi narratives of destruction, such as oral histories of the fall of Sikyaki village on the pre-Spanish First Mesa, all focus on young men's contests over a maiden as the trigger for the rise of sorcery and chaos. You contend that at Sikyaki, this, quote, contest for the maiden's attention and services as as wife highlights individual self-interest rather than the village's well-being. Wholesale obliteration rather than select individual persecution is the storm that washes away the corruption and brings a fresh dawn for renewal. Can you elucidate how cycles of evangelism, gender, perhaps sexuality, perhaps matrilineality, and definitely prophecy reflected or did not reflect environmental as well as demographic renewal across the Hopi mesas before and after 1540? Well, that's a mouthful, Ryan. That's a big question. That's a very, it's, it's a great question. And again, one of these that, that's really difficult to resolve that I think all students of, uh, com- shall we call it communal violence or intergroup inter- violence or, uh, would say that fear of the other, fear of the alien, fear of the intruder, fear of the immigrant, uh, is a, is a very, very deep trigger in, in the human makeup. Um, and clearly there are several points in the book where I talk about the amount, the amount of, of kind of intercultural migration that's going on in the Southwest during the period that Awadawi is coming together and forming as a community in the 13th and 14th centuries and how that constant movement of peoples usually driven by regional or sub-regional crises in environment uh, the, the you know the great drought uh in the four corners region from you know seven, six, or 1270 up and into uh, the turn of the into the 13th 14th century is one but there there are many kind of micro-environmental crises that unfold in the Southwest all the time, having lived there in a long time. Um, you, you, you begin looking for those rain clouds come July, and they either show up or they don't in the summer monsoons. And if you're an agricultural people, depending on rain to um, bring your corn up out of the ground and to bring it to ripeness, uh, everything depends on whether or not 
that happens. It also matters a lot if uh, you have, let's say, enough corn stored from the previous good year to support your community of, let's say, it's a village of 200 people. Or if you have migrants on the horizon who may be another 40 or 60 or 80 people and you think, wait a minute, um, how are we going to take care of these people? That you know, There are powerful kinds of cultural affirmations of sharing and, and uh, intergroup support that, that are also run through Pueblo society and, and really admirable, wonderful qualities. But I try to... to make the point that in, in the book that this story that I'm, I'm telling here is very much a story about our present too, that if you want to see fear linked to violence, all you have to do is look at the politics of immigration in the United States today and, and very, very ugly stuff that unfolds. So, so that I think is a universe, again, part of the universalness of this story, that this is not just a Hopi story or a Spanish colonial borderland story. It's, it's a story that happens across time and space. Um, there's also this notion of cycles of evangelism that I've played with both in this book, but also in earlier kind of more scholarly, entirely more boring work. Um, and that is, I, w- I was, I have always been struck when you look at accounts of when the Spaniards first begin showing up in the Southwest from 1540 on. These you know, columns, these sometimes big you know, expeditions, like Coronado's expedition has got you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands of livestock. They're completely crushing everything they walk across. Um, but what you don't see. Puebloan people doing is exhibiting shock and awe. You get you get a much more of a sense of. You know, I, I like to say it's like, oh God, here we go again. Um, and I, I, years ago, I got to thinking maybe Catholicism was just another moment of evangelical invasion that. Uh, People had experienced with the emergence of the Katsina religion in the in the 13th century that seems to have swept across the region in the period of a couple of generations at most, where everybody has adopted in some way or another uh, aspects of the Katsina religion, whose origins are shady and much argued in Southwest archaeology. Some see it emanating up and out of um, you know, the Central Valley of Mexico. Others see it very much kind of grown in place. But because of the perception today is that the Katsina ceremonial cycles and all are all about kind of harmony and peace and assuring uh, fertility and, and abundance of crops, that it's, that it's always been a peaceful process. And in fact, when you look at the evidence, um, both of the timing of, of conflict in communities and uh, the you know, petroglyph- uh, petroglyphic evidence and whatnot, that first generation or two of the emergence of the Katsina religion is a really hard time in the Southwest. And there's a lot of evidence, a lot, a lot of iconography around violence and warfare. This is when there are many, many villages that are destroyed. And even Hopi accounts of the Katsinas early on uh, represent them as these powerful, numinous figures that have the capacity to literally destroy a village if the village doesn't accept them.
And I, I write about some of those in the book. So, so when Franciscans show up in their little brown robes, right, and a, and a burro or two, like the Hopis are like, eh, whatever. Um, it's like, here we go again. Let's see what they got, right? Let's see, let's see how this works. You know, maybe maybe Katsina stuff worked out pretty good for us. Maybe we should listen to these guys a little bit. Because I, you know, I, I talk about the, some of the earliest uh, oral historical accounts we have is, is uh, that of, of the village of Arabi's experience with Franciscans. And they very clearly start out as they say, you know, for the first few years, it was pretty good. Um, you know, it rained, crops were plentiful. We built some stuff for them. We helped them build a church. Everything was fine. And then uh, things didn't go so well and the rain stopped and suddenly Franciscan Catholicism didn't seem to be offering much. And and so the tensions within that particular mission grew. And then obviously across the landscape, they grew to the point that in 1680, you get this widespread revolt that expels the Franciscans. So I don't know if that really addresses everything you had in mind there. Yes, it yes it does. Thank you. Um, I want to focus for a moment on a specific curse um, that uh, it was after the first Pueblo revolts, uh, which began in 1680. Uh, the the Wolpe village of First Mesa uh, quote needed to increase its strength. Once. One strategy toward that end could draw upon a centuries-deep custom on the Hopi mesas, the addition of outsiders to their community. Despite, we've already alluded to this, despite the recruitment of the battle-tested fighters known as the Tano, Welpi village initially rejected approximately 400 migrants led by Agaitse. The Hopi chief did eventually offer quote, a location north of Walpi village on First Mesa for a new village and allocated planting lands to the Tanos toward the east. And yet deep suspicions remained. When the Hopi chief reminded Agatse that the agreement included the Tanos' right to take some, of, quote, take some of our women for wives, the Tano leader demurred. Um, Agatse feared that should Hopi women marry into the Tanos and tensions arose again, they might have to break apart. Frustrated, he laid down a curse with a strength embraced by all the descendants of the migration. But in those first years after the founding of this new village, the question of just where the Tanos would find wives to sustain and increase their numbers remained an open one. For our listeners, can you describe this curse and explain whether or not it would, quote, shape future relations, or it did, shape future relations between the Tanos and Hopis that endures today? <laughs> well, it, this is... Um you know, this is continues to be a very much a, a, a current tension on First Mesa, where where you have two Hopi communities and what we call Tewa Village today. What was in the you know, ethnographic times was called Tano, um, based on the fact that these folks are called Mark or earlier term Tano's, they're, they're a sub-branch of, of Tewa, come out of the Galisteo base in south of Santa Fe for the most part. Um, and there, my treatment of this migration story is largely drawn from descendant accounts from Tewa village. So it, you know, I, I'll be the first to say that it has a pro-Tewa slant to it because that's the the the, the best evidence that, that 
was available to me. Um, they're not other Hopi Hopis from the other mesas or even Walpi or Sikomabi. Um, will say quite otherwise to, to how this unfolds. The, 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 the one that is in the book is generally the one that, that you know, we kind of, we teach, and that is that the Hopis um, between 1680 and 1700 are feeling beleaguered not only by the return after, after 1693 of Spaniards, but are also being raided consistently by Utes and, and Comanches down who come at harvest time, of course, uh, wait for the harvest to be collected, and then raid villages to take take the corn, take women, take children as captives. Sometimes they resell them to, to Spaniards. Um, and, and so, and then there's a lot of evidence actually of intra village tension at Hopi as well, that there's, there are kind of conflicts between villagers. So, so the folks at Walpi who are feeling very distraught, um, I send emissaries into you know east to the Rio Grande to uh, talk to people who have survived the Pueblo revolt they actually were key players and fighters in the revolt and they um, solicit according to these stories the migration of uh, Tanos or Tewas out to, to take up a village on the, the north side of First Mesa and to act as guardians of that northern gate um, because they're, they're battle-proven. Uh, they have just been implicated in and punished for participating in the short-lived 1696 Pueblo Revolt. There's two, you know, the, the big successful one in 1680 and the much less successful one in 96. Um, and so some large group of migrants, perhaps, you know, three, four, five hundred people do come out to the mesas. And then this very, very difficult um, negotiation ensues of that, that one can imagine why, on the one hand, maybe Hopis want to have some additional military support. On the other hand, um, they don't want one to to be looked down upon they don't want to be seeing themselves as not functional fighters they've already proven themselves in many occasions as perfectly you know good field warriors um and so that the attention is developed there at first mesa during these kind of negotiations between pinion walpi and and um Dewa village that ultimately ends up involving a curse that's laid down by uh, the Tano leader, Agatsai, who says that we basically, it says that we will, we will learn Hopi in order to live here and be the guardians of the Northern gate. And we will participate in the ceremonial calendar. We'll bring our calendar. We'll meld it with yours. Uh, you know, we will fulfill our part of the, of, of the agreement. However, uh, you will never learn Tewa. And thus, we will protect our independence as Tewa people um, in ways that 
regard the, the the language at least as being particular to to our identity, and in general, this has proven to be true. That if you look at contemporary ethnographies uh, of First Mesa, for the you know, most most folks at Tewa Village, they speak no Hopi, they know Spanish, they know English, you know, they're 21st century people. But on the other hand, Hopis kind of don't try too hard to learn Tewa. And, you know, one could argue what's going on here is actually two forms of kind of identity and boundary maintenance. On the one hand, uh, people kind of trying to reserve a language to themselves. But on the other hand, people saying, hey, we we don't want to learn your language. You know, it's like only English is spoken here, right? Um, But but it's emblematic, I think, in some ways of the kinds of tensions that can develop between communities, whether they be... 300 years ago or tomorrow around issues of strength, pride, gender, intermarriage, all of these things uh, are, are implicated there. And, you know, the, the, the final sentence uh, in Mesa of Sorrows at the end of the of my acknowledgments says really that what this book is about or the lesson of this book is very simple. It's it's that let us try not to make strangers of our kinfolk and neighbors. That's the takeaway. That because when we do, bad stuff happens. So that's my that's my shot on that one. You know, I, I have subsequently <laughs> been uh, told by folks from Walpi that all oh, those Tewas are they're they're not they came as beggars, they came as defeated fugitives from the sixteen ninety six revolt and we only took them in because we thought they might be useful. So there there are there are many, many different ways of rendering this story and and um yeah, my my friends at Walpi feel differently than my friends at Tewa. So, um, I want to touch. Thank you. I want to touch briefly on uh, Albert Yaba's uh, narrative. I believe I found one that was right. Yeah, yeah. There's our. There's our. You know, that's why we have a Tewa version of the of the migration because Yaba's narrative is rich and wonderful and for it's a historian's dream. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, he indicates that the Walpi war chief and uh, Don Francisco um, the Rabi Katike um, on behalf of the Awatobi Bo clan Kikwangui Tapolo agreed to obliterate Awatobi and purify it of factionalism between traditionalists and Catholic neophytes. The latter converts purportedly disrupted Katsina's ceremonies, perhaps in the wake of the May 1700 baptism of 73 Awatobi peoples by a visiting padre. How did uh, documentary evidence of Don Francisco's, uh, by the way, Don Francisco, we mentioned earlier in the introduction, uh, Padre, Padre Espalata's probable murder um, post-1696, so after the, the the second or third phase of the, yeah. How did his liminal role as Badger Clan informant and Catholic convert substantiate or did not substantiate or both Yaba's narrative? How did it? How did it how, how did it correspond? Um, and then in that context, uh, you also argue that uh, witnessing at Awatobi the emergence of a heterodox experimental piety that posed an alternative to the practice of Orthodox Hopi religion 
um, the entrenched spiritual and political leadership since the end of the world fast approaching. How, um, in that context, can you discuss a little bit as well the young European man found uh, underneath the altar of the uh, mission San Bernardo? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are, are kind of, they're, well, they're related. They're, they're two pretty different um, lines of evidence that uh, this this character uh, who the Spanish call Don Francisco Espeleta, uh, who knows what he's called, you know, he never shows up. Certainly Hopis know about this guy. They're very reluctant to talk about him for obvious reasons. Um he appears to probably have been uh, a godchild of uh, Padre Jose de Espeleta, who uh, was a key member, a key, key part of the, the emergence of this notion of Awadavi as the singing house, and that he, he brought Carl singing. He, he <laughs> There were a lot of bad Padres at, at uh, the Hopi Mesas. However, Espeleta does not appear to have been one. He seems to have been pretty well respected. Um, however, Francisco de Espeleta, the, the godson, one, he um, speaks Spanish. He appears to have had perhaps even some uh, education in Mexico. He may have been sent to Mexico and back. He comes back um, at some point in in. 1670s, because I think it's 64 that he's probably being trained up under under the Franciscans. Um, and he seems to have kind of changed his position on, on Franciscan missions to the Hopi. And uh, the, the Spanish accounts refer to him as the cacique or what Hopis might call the Kikmongwe, the, the crier chief of Oribe village, which is the other big village uh, out on the mesas. In many ways, it's a rival to Awadabi. And I, I talk some about that in the book that even um, Hopis today talk about the, the kind of the, the rivalry for this command of the ceremonial calendar, that sort of thing between the two villages. Um so Espeleta is is really curious. Maybe he did, you know, slay his own godfather in 1680. That some accounts have that. But the thing um, where I find him most fascinating is, is, as you know, having read the book, that there's this key moment in the run up to the destruction of the village that takes place roughly a month before uh, the village is destroyed. Um, and that's when a, a whole delegation of, of perhaps 30 uh, Hopi leaders go all the way to Santa Fe uh, in October, which is not necessarily a great time to travel, and certainly not on foot. And, you know, this is a long trip. This is several weeks to get to Santa Fe to have an audience with Governor Cubero and Espeleta, Don Francisco, is the spokesperson and lays out a proposal in front of the governor that I interpret as an attempt to kind of manage the interaction between the Spanish colony, Franciscans, and the Hopis in such a way to keep tensions at their very lowest. Uh, to diffuse this kind of danger of, of the explosive 
violence that everyone feels is coming because of the prophetic nature of history uh, out at, at Hopi. Um, and, and as I try to, to suggest in the book, you know, if there's blood on anybody's hands in this story, it's really on Kubero, who just dismisses this delegation's proposal as like, who do you think you are? That you've already accepted submission to the Spanish crown by my act of reconquest, or by, you know, de Vargas's act of reconquest. You don't come to me with proposals. You come to me with submission. So he just throws this out. Uh, and dismisses the whole delegation and sends them home. And, you know, surprise, surprise, 30 days later, the community of Awadavi is destroyed by other Hopis. So um, Hopis have told me that he was, uh, Espaleta was underground his for his whole career with the Franciscans, that his role was as a kind of infiltrator and and spy. And so he was, was trained up for this role. Um, and I haven't seen that, you know, because of the parameters I put on the book that I only work with published documentary kind of sources. I didn't use any of that material, but because much of what, you know, what I, try to say in the book is that this is one guy's understanding of what happened. Now the field is open that I've gathered all the materials available uh, to somebody with a library card. Now Hopis can tell their own story whenever the, if and when they want to. Um, so that's one, one part of your question. The other is this mysterious burial that the uh, Peabody expedition finds in the 1930s uh, when they do go out and do this extensive multi-year excavation at uh, the community. It begins, as you know, with, I think, a perfectly reasonable research plan. And that was that here you finally have a site where you know that there's uh, bedrock at the top of that mesa. And then a whole bunch of cultural deposits, and you know exactly the moment, or the year at least, uh, when it's no longer occupied. So it's a perfect opportunity to develop uh, material culture, typology, and and chronology for for that region. And that was what the director of the project, Joe Brew, sought to do when he first went out there. Um, It shifts because of internal um, Anglo politics because of pressure by the Catholic Church to an excavation of the Mission San Bernardo de Awadabi uh, Church and, and Convento Complex. And in the process of that, they uncover in a makeshift altar on the side of the nave um, what is determined to be the remains of a young European man, roughly 20, 21 years old. He has there are certain kind of key characteristics uh, and skeletal formation that call him a young man. We do not know um, why he was designated a European man, presumably because he lacked the shovel-shaped incisors that supposedly identify distinguish between Indians and and whites. However, you know, the mystery here is there's no record of, in in the Spanish mission, of a young European male being associated with the mission. Um, It also is quite clear that he has died 
post-1680. He's part of this kind of elaborate and complex reuse and continuing use of a destroyed church for interments. Um, He's also super mysterious because unlike the Hopis who are buried in the church nave, who have been buried in a Western kind of Christian fashion as extended burials, um, with a, an assortment of mixed, both Catholic and, and Hopi burial goods. This young man is actually a secondary burial in that his body, his bones are picked clean. He's been bundled up, uh, wrapped in a Hopi cloth, but a cloth that is kind of modeled on the Franciscan robe. He has a, a woven belt that's very much modeled on the, on the Franciscan classic belt. Um, and, but, and yet he's placed on a Hopi basket in this bundled form and deposited in this, this kind of altar space. Um, it doesn't show up in any of the Hopi narratives that have ever surfaced. There's no explanation for him. The Francis, the the folks from the Peabody don't know what to do with him. They they send the body to uh, Cambridge for identification as a young European male, and then suddenly find themselves in the midst of a kind of firestorm of politics because uh, the Reverend Victor Stoner down in Tucson, Catholic uh, secular priest and an avid archaeologist, uh, gets wind of this burial and decides that he must be, the young man must be a evidence of a martyrdom during the Pueblo Revolt. So he uh, proposes that the site of Awadabi be turned into a national monument in honor of the... Um, For the, the Franciscans who died in the revolt, uh, that, that these uh, ought to be honored as, as um, somehow people who have, have experienced the worst. And, and he says that the, the water Peabody expedition ought to halt their excavations in the church because they're um, destroying the shrine of a martyr. So, the Peabody folks don't know what to do and point out that uh, this is probably almost certainly a post-revolt interment, that he couldn't have died in the rebellion. Nobody knows who he is, so it's pretty hard to declare him a martyr. Um, and yet everybody gets involved. We have senators, we have directors of the interior, we have all sorts of politics going on. So finally, Joe Brew, the director of the expedition, ship returns. He does the, you know, this is the great irony for anybody who's an archaeologist listening in that uh, the, you know, the first repatriation of human remains in North American archaeology is not of an indigenous person to an indigenous community, but of a white man to a Catholic church. He ships it off to the mission at St. Michael's. It's received. We have documentation. The priest at St. Michael's is overcome with joy. He weeps because he's received the body of this martyr. Uh, Everybody is delighted. And um, somehow they managed to lose him over the years. This guy does not show up in any inventory at Mission at St. Michael's. Um, I've talked to <laughs> folks who 
are in charge of uh, that whole province of Guadalupe province. They have no idea what became of him. So we don't know even what contemporary, you know, what, 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 what might modern um, physical anthropology and osteological exploration be able to say about this guy that, you know, the, 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 this, the suggestion I've heard most often is that he's probably the offspring of a Franciscan priest and a Hopi woman who plays some kind of a mediative interdiscipline or interstitial role in between Catholicism and Hopi practice and that he may have been associated with whatever kinds of um, hybrid forms of of piety or experimental piety, as I call it in in the book, that was going on there. But so there's a really long answer to your question. It's a great, great. It's a, it's, it's actually really fascinating uh, question. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, on the eve of the uh, killings of uh, Oatobi, um, Don Francisco, the rejected delegation that you mentioned, may have heard that friars had constructed a new Oatobi church in the convento, uh, removing several Hopi alterations. In the late 30s, the Peabody expedition, the archaeological expedition, revealed that the friars had also hastily begun construction of military barracks to house Spanish cavalry cavalry soldiers. You argue that it seems likely that the Franciscans had become aware of the imminent arrival of the Tano migrants recruited by the Walpi that we discussed, perhaps only by rumor. Can you explain how this built environment and refugees pouring into the Hopi community contributed or didn't contribute to the perfect storm that resulted in plans for fulfillment of the Pahana prophecy and subsequent killings at uh, Awatobi? Sure. I think it's really important to, um, you know, the, the Tano migration is the one that, that always people talk about is because it's, it's kind of endured in a way that, you know, there is a Tewa village up there on First Mesa and, and a distinct long serving community. But between 1680 and 1700, if we want to use that as a pivotal year, you know, there are many refugee communities coming into the Hopi Mesas, fleeing the Rio Grande. Um, there are Tiwas coming. There are, are uh, northern Tiwas and southern Tiwas. We have uh, additional Tewa migrations, and we have villages that form out there on the Mesas. Um, that are kind of, you know, it's like you're accepted, but geez, this is getting really crowded here. And if we have a bad year, this is going to get bad. So, uh, and, and these are folks who have had a much deeper immersion in Spanish colonial life since they're coming from the Rio Grande region. And although they probably are bringing, um, pretty, uh, unhappy memories of the Spanish times, they are Hispanicized at some level. You know, there's a tremendous amount of of intermarriage already by the time of the 1680 revolt. There are a lot of uh, mestizo Pueblo Spaniards uh, in the public communities. And so, so if you're Hopi, here you are, you know, you're 350 some miles from the Rio Grande and you're really glad you are a long way away because you don't want to be a part of anything that's going on over there. And yet, refugees start showing up 
on your doorstep. Now, that should sound familiar to us today. If you're Western Europe or United States and you're getting Syrian refugees and Kurdish refugees, you know, there's a, these are conflicts that in some ways are completely divorced from everyday life, and yet they're transforming your everyday life because people who, who are arriving and, you know, that most human societies have an ethic of acceptance and sharing and generosity. That That's kind of how we learn to get along. And yet there are these po- points where people feel the limits and, and uh, you know, there there's one community uh, of Tiwas that even today, um, you know, Hopis will say, oh, they were, they were spies when they came here. We discovered they were spies and so we drove them out. Um, so here you are at Hopi, you know, there's there've been some odd doings at Hawaii for the last 20 years, right? Um, not sure what they are. Interesting. Since the book has come out, you know, I've, I've done workshops with the Hopi Cultural Preservation Office for Hopi, the, any, you know, Hopi member, any Hopi tribal member can have a copy of the book for free. We've given away, I think, 86 at this point. Um, the, uh, um, one of the associate judges for the Hopi tribal courts, who's a direct lineal descendant of Tatpolo, is tobacco keeper at, at Walpi, Judge Delford uh, Leslie. He uses now the book and, and the case as a way of talking about intra-community conflict and, and conflict resolution, things like that. Um, but so, but imagine that you're, you're out there, you know that there's been this brief visitation in May of 1700 by Padre Garasachia and some, and some two or three other Padres, probably with a small military escort, um, though it's not abs- we're not absolutely sure. Uh, they've cleaned up a portion of the old convento and kind of created a makeshift um, nave and, and church out of it. They put in a new uh, baptismal font, things like that. Then left. They they supposedly baptized 300, I don't know, 70 some, uh, some kids. Uh, then they leave. But they leave with solid evidence that they're also constructing a military barracks there that could house up to 12 soldiers. And once that news circulates, I think the whole level of concern, you know, skyrockets because well, one of the enigmas of the whole Spanish colonial period and the pre-revolt period is is the the success of these missions um, from 1626 on in terms of not having military personnel associated with them. The only one that really had a, a, a detail assigned to it was up at Pecos now. Um, Otherwise, you know, all this labor and trend, all these transitions that we associate with the mission area happened without you know, people that, yes, they certainly brought Indians from other communities in uh, as Capitanas de Guerra, you know, the people to kind of provide muscle, but it was mostly indigenous, you know, collaborators, what do you want to call them? So it's it, the fact that that there's a, a barracks under construction for if you really had twelve soldiers assigned, that would probably be like one of the big, probably the biggest military statement on the colony of New Mexico outside of Santa Fe. Um, so th- then you get word that 
the Tanos are migrating, coming out to join the Hopis. That's got to make you very nervous. Um, and you, you also, really, if you're Hopi, you think, wait, oh, there, you know, there's some additional muscle for us. Maybe that's important. Uh, and uh, you ask about the evidence of Tano uh, participation in the destruction of of Awatabi, and uh, there's evidence on both sides. <laughs> And that's it's not up to me to make that call. Do you think the uh, is there any is there any evidence that the uh, this is a brief follow up question that the Tewa village Tano that we discussed earlier who are searching for wives to sustain their numbers is there any evidence or any uh, anything to indicate that they participated? That's a really that's a great question because um, one of the things that we do know is that there are what are called Awadavi clans in Hopi villages. And they are clustered predominantly in the three uh, villages that fielded warriors, the Walpi, Mishongabi, and Raibi. And the only way you can have a clan appear in a village is if a female clan member comes in and brings their clan with her and um, begins to reproduce you know, clans people. There are Awadabi clans at Tewa village. However, that could have also, you know, Tewas are much, you know, they, they may have intermarried uh, a century later. That's you know, um, just, there are people obviously who know and that's their business uh, i don't think it changes the story any in any way and, and for the, it doesn't change the, the significance of the story that i tell in any way obviously it's important but it's important for other reasons then the core the the core was probably was uh Probably, I don't know, may have, I guess it doesn't really matter, but may have, probably it was Don Francisco and the Arabi warriors. Um, and then the, I just, I was just wondering. Probably, though, you know, how, how he how ends up, know, yeah. um, <laughs> how he ends up being a cacique of Arabi if he's from Arabi, that, that doesn't quite make sense. But uh, he's clearly not at Arabi, uh, and, and Arabi is the big, rival it's the big powerful rival so he's chosen well but he's also i think proposing a pretty reasonable conciliatory plan in october if if indeed you know that delegation if if it's if it's fairly represented uh in the spanish documents that was a more than reasonable proposal to deal with the the tensions and that is that the spaniards could visit once a year uh, Franciscans could come and they could come to one settlement each year. They could preach, they could baptize, do whatever they wanted, and then they would go away. And the next year they would come to a different settlement and go through the same thing. And you know, one could argue that this is a way of kind of managing interactions between maybe still Catholic sympathizers out at Hopi, that they get to once a year have their children baptized, right? Uh, there, you know, it may, it may be, but you know, who will, will, I don't think we're ever going to know, but it seemed to me that it really, it bore remarking uh, upon uh, as, as an effort on the part of Hopi leadership to prevent what they knew was going to happen if, 
if something didn't work out. And I've tried to really forefront that in, in all the public talks I've given around this is, you know, one of the things leaders are supposed to do is do the right thing, right? <laughs> They're supposed to solve problems and prevent violence instead of stoking it, right? And it seems to me that the Hopi leadership went above and beyond that kind of call to duty, that they really did try to find a way that this might not happen. And and Cubetto rejects them just because of out of the arrogance of, you know, Spaniards still, even after the punishment they took in 1680, have the arrogance of imperialists. And that is that, well, come on, we we're the winners, right? We came back, we defeated you, and you you need to be subservient to us now. When in fact, the reconquest is very much a negotiated affair, that Spaniards promised to be very different, and Franciscans promised to be very different, and Pueblos promised to be good, trusty military auxiliaries in dealing with people like Apaches and Comanches, because that's a lot of why they allowed that to re- to happen because Comanches have become by 1700 a really scary threat to the outskirts of the Puebloan world or in you know even inside the Puebloan world so uh finally can you elaborate on the conclusion that if even after the 1700 uh, Awadabi killings Awadabi did not die neither too would Christianity be forever excluded from the mesas well, it, a lot of it as a community, yes, I think you know, did die. It was never never reoccupied. Although um, clans still have claims to cornfields and peach orchards, that um, one of the things I I have. In, in the book is is that some of the women of the Wadabi uh, were not taken captive and fled the Mesa and were absorbed into the Navajos down in uh, Jedido Wash, and that's why you have these these small inholding uh, Navajo communities inside the Hopi reservation, the the Jedido Island and and down at. Um, in the, the Butte country, there's a couple down there, and it's because they're recognized as being kin to Hopis. So, so the, actually, the lines, the clans from Wadawi have continued, continued to exist. Um, and you know, you will hear, well, we we threw the, that you know, we expelled the Spaniards in 1680 and the Franciscans, and we never allowed Catholicism back. That's kind of true, but there is a small Catholic. Uh, community uh, at, at, at Hopi. There's certainly many Christian sects. The first Mormon missions to the Hopi were in the 1850s. I think Jacob, Ham, Jacob Hamlin goes down there in the late 50s. Uh, he converts one of the leaders, uh, a fellow named Tuva, uh, who brings his followers then out uh, to where that's where Tuba city, Arizona gets its name is from that Hopi man's name, Tuva. Um, so you have a, a, a whole contingent of, of Mormon Hopis living by the, certainly the late 19th century. You have um, a lot of uh, Pentecostal Christians among Hopis who are also completely comfortable with uh, observing their duties and responsibilities 
uh, in the ceremonial calendar as well. There's a fabulous uh, Katsina Carver, Armin Fritz, at First Mesa, who is he's the keeper of the Bluebird Clan migration story, but he's also a leading member of the Pentecostal Church down in Palaka. So, and one of the things that kind of makes me crazy as a teacher is as people think that indigenous peoples have to be either a hundred percent, you know, committed to indigenous spirituality or they've sold out by becoming Christian. And there's plenty of evidence in the Pueblo world that people can observe both quite comfortably. And what's wrong with that? seems like to me a pretty good solution in many ways. So I, I, I think that's what I meant by, by that closing line. Thanks for the uh, clarification. I actually have one final question. Uh, what can what can we expect from you next that you can disclose? Oh my! Well, that's this is what I'm doing at the Robert Penn Warren Center uh, at Vanderbilt this year. Is was working on a new book that I've long kind of puzzled and wanted to do. It's called Picket Wire, which is a kind of country Anglo perversion of the French word purgatoire or purgatory. And it's uh, settled set in the New Mexico, Colorado borderlands of uh, Los Animas and Huerfano counties of Colorado. I've long wanted to write a, a story that combines indigenous histories, Hispano history and uh, labor history with the kind of the more dominant like Anglo-American story, kind of a national story. And it has just so happens that this location is the perfect place to do it. And it also has this wonderful river called the Purgatory River or the what locals call the Picket Wire. Uh, and the overarching kind of message of this many generation intertwined families book is that everybody all of us dwell in purgatory because everybody has blood on our hands and we're never going to wash it off. So that's what I'm trying to do. Thank you, uh, Professor Brooks. Uh, that concludes uh, for your time today. Uh, that concludes our uh, podcast on Mesa of Sorrows, um, the killings at Awadobi. Um, stay tuned for next time. Um, I thank all our listeners. And of course, I thank uh, Professor Brooks. And we'll, uh, it's been my pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. All right. All right. Tune in next time. Thanks. Thanks.